According to a 2018 article by Psychology Today, there have been 514 recorded female serial killers since 1910, and approximately 17% of all serial homicides in the United States are committed by women. However, these are just the numbers we know of. For decades, authorities were quick to dismiss the notion of murderous women, let alone repeat offenders, but it's not as rare as one might think. In today's episode of Cold Case Detective, we're going to look at just three chilling cases of women who kill. Juana Barraza Born on December 27, 1957, in Yucan in Hidalgo, Mexico, Juana Barraza did not have the kind and nurturing environment one would expect a parent to provide their child with. Several accounts claim that her mother was a sex worker, who birthed Juana at just 13 years of age, and who was an abusive alcoholic while her father was alleged to have fathered as many as 32 children. When Juana was 12 years old, her mother traded her to an older man for booze. It was at his hands that Juana suffered further trauma as he sexually abused her. By the age of 16, she had endured two miscarriages as a result of the ongoing abuse, and eventually she even birthed a son who later died at the age of 24 due to injuries he sustained in a mugging he'd been the victim of. Little else is known about Juana's early tragic life other than that she had a string of failed marriages that were often abusive and which gave her three more children, two daughters and another son. By all accounts, Juana supported her family via minimum wage jobs, petty theft and eventually home burglary and was known to be illiterate. Most notably, Juana was known to work as a popcorn vendor at wrestling events. She was noted to be a huge fan of Lucha Libre, a form of Mexican professional wrestling famous for its use of mask-wearing fighters. She was often seen frequenting the front rows of arenas and even organized local wrestling events for small-town fiestas. She even attempted to craft her own career in wrestling, but was unsuccessful as Juana only ever participated in small, amateur events. She went by the name of La Dama del Silencio, or the Lady of Silence, something which has stuck with her throughout her criminal career. When asked about why she chose this name, she told reporters, I am quiet and I keep myself to myself. But for many, the Lady of Silence moniker has a disturbing connection to her crimes. In 2003, Mexico City saw a rise in the number of grisly crimes against elderly women. Although the public and media alike noticed the troubling stats, Mexican authorities were quick to dismiss this fear as media sensationalism, and so the cases continued to grow unchecked until 2005 when law enforcement finally began a thorough investigation into the crimes. The unidentified serial killer, dubbed Mata Vajitas, or the Little Old Lady Killer, was known to attack women over 60 years of age who lived alone. 
The victims were often strangled with things such as curtain cords, stockings and telephone cables, although some were beaten. Several news articles online thought that Juana sexually defiled her victims, but this is not widely reported. The killer was also known to take valuable possessions on occasion, but often instead took trophy-like religious objects such as Bibles and crucifixes. At one point, authorities thought that there were perhaps multiple killers involved and were thrown off by a red herring during the investigation when they discovered that several of the victims owned the same print of a painting from the 18th century. Thus, for a period of time, they were chasing down false leads. Mexican law enforcement agencies profiled that the killer was a man confused about his sexual identity and had likely been abused at the hands of his mother or grandmother, thus leading to the brutal nature of the crimes, which indicated a burning hatred for his victims. Authorities discerned the sexual identity crisis portion of that description from the fact that in November of 2005, witness statements emerged that described the killer as wearing women's clothing, but that the killer was large, short-haired, and a, quote, masculine-looking woman. This profile, teamed with the fact that authorities believed the killer was likely a transvestite male, perhaps because of their own prejudices against the idea of women being serial killers, led them to pulling in around 49 transvestite sex workers for questioning. This in turn caused much upset and outrage among the LGBTQ community and the media, with journalist Joe Tuckman of The Guardian describing the actions of law enforcement as ham-fisted. Then, two months later, authorities began to fingerprint unidentified bodies in the morgue, hoping it would lead to the identity of the serial killer who they believed had killed themselves. Strangely, authorities felt that if the killer was a woman, she would not have been able to shoulder the guilt of all the crimes she'd committed. Finally, in January of 2006, law enforcement made the breakthrough that they needed when a suspect was arrested fleeing the home of one of the latest victims. The victim was an 82-year-old woman who'd been strangled to death with a stethoscope. The elderly woman's lodger saw the killer leave just before stumbling over the deceased's body, and the suspect was detained by passing police and neighbours. It was a surprise to the media and the law enforcement when the killer turned out to be the mother of four, Juana Barraza, who was 48 years old at the time. With her conservative attire and neat, cropped hair, she resembled the composite images of the suspect and was found carrying pension forms, a stethoscope, and a fake social worker ID card. The nail in the coffin for Juana was when authorities searched her home and found newspaper clippings of her crimes, neatly stored away, as well as objects taken from the crime scenes. Juana had made her way into the homes of some of the most vulnerable people by posing as a government official and offering them sign-ups to welfare programs, whilst with others, she reportedly offered to do part-time work for them, such as cleaning and cooking. It was believed that Juana prowled neighborhoods looking for elderly women who lived alone. Upon being caught, Juana's fingerprints connected her to at least 10 other murders. Some sources report that she went on to confess to four, but most report that she only confessed to one, the murder of Ana Maria de los Reyes, the victim of the murder she committed just before being caught. She claimed she'd gotten angry at the elderly woman and that she lashed out due to the lingering resentment she had for her own mother, who died in 1980. Juana denied involvement in all other cases. 
Prosecutors attempted to charge her with 27 deaths, and during her trial in the spring of 2008, they alleged that she was responsible for as many as 40. Meanwhile, her defense argued that Wana was being used as a scapegoat to calm the media and local civilians, and argued that she was mentally unfit. This, however, fell through. On March 31st, 2008, Wana was found guilty of 16 charges of murder and aggravated burglary, and was sentenced to 759 years in prison. At the time of her arrest, Wana had her two youngest children living at home with her, one aged 13 and one aged 11. Both were sent to live with their older sister, who had married and left the house early on in life, but had stayed close to her mother. According to all sources, Wana had healthy, functioning relationships with her children, and they're described as being friendly and well-mannered. In prison, Wana married 74-year-old inmate Miguel Angel, who was serving a life sentence for murder. The pair had dated via mail, meeting for the first time on their wedding day. Reportedly, the couple saw each other three times afterwards, totaling just two hours. The marriage crumbled in less than a year. Juana is Mexico's first recorded female solo serial killer, and will likely spend the rest of her days in prison. She will be technically eligible for parole in 2058, at which time she would be 100 years old. Estibalus Carranza Dubbed the Ice Cream Killer, or Ice Killer, Estibalus Carranza was born on September 6, 1978 in Mexico, though she holds dual nationality for Mexico and Spain. An intelligent honor student, Estibalas moved as a child to Spain and eventually moved herself to Germany, where she apparently learned the language within just three months. From there, the young woman moved to Austria, where she opened her own ice cream parlor establishment. It was here, in Vienna, at 22 years old, Estibalas married 38-year-old Holger Holtz following a short courtship. Estibalas seemed to be fixated on settling down and starting a family of her own, but her fairy tale ending didn't come as she hoped. The relationship between her and her husband quickly disintegrated. Once the pair was married, Holger began to verbally abuse his wife and was described as lazy and uninterested in her. He quickly stopped sleeping with her and repeatedly told her that she was unattractive. Holger also became part of the Hare Krishna movement, and apparently began spending the bulk of his time at a temple, rather than at home with his wife. Disheartened with her marriage and eager to have a child, Estibulus decided to take up a relationship with an ice cream machinery salesman named Manfred Hinterberger, who was 48 years old at the time. She divorced from her husband, but he refused to move out. So, when the relationship between Estibulus and Manfred started to collapse, her ex had a front row seat to the show. Reportedly, in 2008, when Manfred left Estibulus for another woman, her ex-husband took delight in this and told her that she'd never find another man. Holger was sitting at his computer desk when Estibulus walked up behind him and shot him dead with his own handgun. She shot him twice, then a third time, just to be sure. According to her own memoirs, which were published in 2014, Estibulus then tried to burn the body, but it remained mostly intact. The fire got so heated that the local fire brigade turned up at her door, but she managed to turn them away without being caught. 
Fearing being found out and having her chances at motherhood quashed, the then 30-year-old decided to purchase a chainsaw and spent time dismembering her ex-husband's body. She concealed his remains in empty ice cream pails from her store, which she then filled with concrete and stashed in the cellar of her shop. The disappearance of Holger Holz went unnoticed and Estibulas carried on with her life as if nothing had happened, still desperately seeking a man who would do right by her and the children she wanted. Shortly after this, Manfred Hinterberger appeared back on the scene. This time he came prepared with all the right things to say, begging Estibulas to take him back and promising that he was ready to settle down and start a family. So, the young woman agreed to rekindle their romance, but she found herself struggling to trust her new partner. In 2010, Estibulus found nude photos and sexual texts from a woman on Manfred's phone, which spurred her into taking shooting lessons as well as researching concrete mixing. One night, the couple engaged in a heated argument about Manfred's inability to be faithful, but instead of resolving the argument, Manfred simply turned away from her in bed and fell asleep. Blinded by rage and likely desperation, Estibulus shot her boyfriend to death. This time, however, she was prepared with plastic sheets set up for when she disposed of the body in the same way she had her previous husband. When curious neighbours asked what she was up to, the then 32-year-old woman simply told them it was a new ice cream machine in the parlour. Once more, Estibulus' life returned to normal until 2011, when maintenance workers who were carrying out tasks in the cellar of her ice cream parlour noticed a foul smell wafting about the room. Although she had done her best to cover up the stench of decaying flesh with an abundance of air fresheners, Estibulus couldn't quite eradicate it. One of the basement workers opened up one of the pails in the freezer and was shocked and traumatised when he found the rotting remains of a leg inside. Estibulus wasted no time. She fled to Italy via taxi ride and was located in the apartment of a street musician who had possibly just dodged a bullet when Estibulus was arrested. On the same day of her arrest, Estibulus found that she had gotten the one thing she always wanted. She was pregnant. The father is named only as Roland in newspaper articles, and the circumstances of their relationship are unknown. At her trial, Estibulus was defended by Rudolf Mayer, the same lawyer who defended the monstrous Joseph Fritzl. Prosecutors described Estibulus as singularly cold-blooded, while a psychiatrist diagnosed her as having a personality disorder and labelled her as extremely dangerous and capable of killing again. Professionals were uncertain that therapy would really benefit her. Despite this, in 2017, Estibulus was moved from her prison to a special centre in Aston, near Linz City in Austria. The facility is mixed-sex, state-of-the-art, and gives prison inmates the freedom to move within the centre and cook together. She was reportedly moved for showing an advanced reduction in the relevant dangerousness. Details on how the 40-year-old showed improvements and how she went from being at risk of relapsing to being suitable for a transfer to a less restricted environment is unknown. In 2014, Estibulus published a book on the events that transpired between 2008 and 2011, and has spent her time behind bars studying business. According to some reports, the proceeds from her book are going straight to her son, who she had in prison, and who is also named Roland after the father. One BBC article notes that she married the father of her child while in prison, and there are mixed reports about whether the son lives with his father or his grandparents in Spain. 
My name is Koji. And I'm Michelle. And this is the Japanese America Podcast. So this is where we look at all things Japanese American. We will bring alive the history, culture, and people that make up this diverse community. In this month's episode, we'll examine Koji's unique family history. To help bring this story alive, we brought on actor and comedian Derek Mew. He was reported to be extremely pro-Japanese and anti-American in sentiment. Her husband was taken into custody by the military authorities under a warrant authorized by the Secretary of War, who was his enemy of the United States. He was my grandfather on my dad's side. To hear more stories about Japanese America, you can listen to this podcast anywhere you normally download your podcast. Bell Gunnus. Brynhild Storseth, better known as Bell Gunnus, was born on November 11th, 1858, in Selbu, Norway. She grew up in a poor family who were tenants on a small farm, and her early life in poverty is what fueled her later greed for wealth and the good life during adulthood. Bell was in her early 20s when she moved to the United States in 1881. She spent some time working as a maid in Chicago, where she changed her name to Bell Peterson before settling down with another Norwegian immigrant named Mads Sorensen in 1884. The couple owned a sweet shop that at one point fell victim to arson, burning down completely, but it gave the pair a handsome insurance payout. Mysteriously, their home also burned down, and again, the Sorensons received money from this. Although they were likely happy with the money they received, to the outside world, it looked as if tragedy constantly followed Belle wherever she went. The couple had two children, although they were not biologically Belle's own. The first, Caroline, died in 1896, and her brother, Alex, followed her two years later in 1898. Both passed away from colitis, although it is now believed their illnesses were brought on by poisoning from their new mother. Further upset came when, on July the 30th, 1890, Mads died of cerebral hemorrhaging. According to his wife, Mads came home with a headache, so Belle gave him quinine powder for the pain. When she went to check on him later in the day, she found him dead. Looking back, it feels awfully coincidental that Mads tragically passed away on the only day that his two life insurance policies overlapped. One began while the other was about to expire. But to authorities at the time, there was no malicious intent to be found, and Bell was cleared of any involvement in her husband's end. She collected $5,000, over $140,000 in today's money, from his life insurance policies and moved to a farm in Indiana. In 1902, Bell married Peter Gunnis, a recent widow himself with two young children to take care of, the youngest of whom passed away just seven months old and only a week into the couple's marriage. Peter was also from Norway, and in another tragic or suspicious turn of events, died after eight months of marriage to his new wife. According to Bell, Peter reached up for something on a high shelf and was hit by a meat grinder that fell on him. His cause of death was an injury to the skull, and his grim passing was ruled as accidental. Things were largely quiet for Bell for several years after that, until April 28, 1908, when her farmhand, a man named Joe Maxson, awoke to find the home up in flames, with thick smoke billowing from the raging fire. He attempted to wake the children and Belle herself, but the doors to their rooms were locked, and so he fled to alert the local fire brigade. 
Once the fire was extinguished, the local community was saddened that the headless body of a woman, presumed to be the 48-year-old Belle Guinness, was found along with the bodies of her three foster children. Newspapers wrote of the ultimate tragedy, that the woman who'd gone through and lost so much in her lifetime had met a horrifying end trying to save her children from the flames. It was later found that all three children had a form of poison in their bodies that was often used by their mother, but the testifying doctor refused to declare it was the official cause of death. Around this time, local police were contacted by a man named Asle Helgelian, who'd found out about the fire. His brother, Andrew, had been corresponding with Belle for quite some time before he went missing when he ventured out to visit her in person. In their letters, Belle had sent approximately 80 over the course of 16 months. Belle had asked that Andrew come stay with her, bring all his money with him, and tell nobody where he was going. Andrew told his brother he'd be back in a week, but he never came home. Although Asle had written to ask about his brother, Belle told him that Andrew had simply vanished and that she too would like to locate him. Asley, however, did not trust what she had said. It wasn't like his brother to take off and vanish without saying a word to anyone. When he had heard about the fire on the farm, he had feared the worst. Asley came to see the scene of the blaze for himself. The farmhouse had been obliterated. What was left was blackened and charred. While investigating some dirt in the pigsty, however, he noticed some depressions in the mud, where, according to the farmhand, Bell had supposedly been depositing rubbish beneath the soil. Following a hunch, Asle dug up the earth, revealing a sack that contained human remains. Two hands, two feet, and a head were inside. They belonged to Andrew. Around the farm, there were dozens more depressions that hid sacks of human bodies, torsos, hands, arms, bones. The depressions were makeshift graves. The entire farm was a graveyard to dozens of bodies, each of which had been dismembered the same way, with the arms removed at the shoulders, the legs butchered at the knees, and the skulls showing gashes and blunt force trauma. Authorities on the scene lost count of the number of bodies they uncovered at the site of the fire. Despite the extensive media coverage that the remains attracted, the majority of the bodies still go unidentified to this day. One of the confirmed bodies was that of Jenny Olsen. Bell's teenage foster child. In late 1906, Bell had told neighbors that Jenny was off at university, which is why she hadn't been seen in a while. More recently, shortly before the fire, she had explained that Jenny was off on her wedding trip. Reportedly, many of the bodies found on the farm were Bell's step and foster children. She is not believed to have had any biological children in her lifetime. The bodies on the discovery of the farm led to local law enforcement and the media alike reassessing Belle's character. No longer was she a devoted mother who'd simply been dealt a poor hand in life. Now, she was a serial killer, covering up her grisly crimes in the most gruesome fashion imaginable. While it has often been said that 40 bodies were found, modern researchers estimate that in actuality it was between 10 and 14 bodies that were found, possibly even more. In November of 1908, Ray Lamphere, Bell's 38-year-old former farmhand and on-again, off-again lover, was convicted of arson in connection with the farm fire. A heavy drinker and gambler, Ray had been hired by Bell in August of 1907. His defense at the trial claimed that Bell was still alive. Ray reportedly later told law enforcement that Bell would put up adverts in Norwegian papers seeking male companionship only to rob and kill the men who responded and visited her farm. 
Apparently, she even asked him to set fire to the house with the children inside and explained that she had faked her own death. Belle had gotten frightened by the idea of Asley coming to look for his brother, and so she had put a plan into motion. However, the couple had recently feuded. In the six weeks prior to the fire, Belle had issued four legal actions against her former farmhand. Ray was found guilty on two counts of trespassing, but Belle failed to have him declared insane or to get a peace bond to protect herself and her property. It's been theorized by online sleuths that Ray and Belle were partners in crime, carrying out the scheme together, but that Ray had grown jealous of Andrew and everything had spiraled out of control afterwards. Many believe that Belle considered Ray to be too poor to be an adequate suitor for herself. While there are some who believe that Belle died in the fire that day along with her foster children, many believe that she successfully faked her own death and lived out the rest of her days in another state, avoiding police detection. Much of this idea comes from the fact that although Belle's scheme earned her the modern day equivalent to tens of thousands of dollars per kill, there was only $700 left in her bank account following the fire. It's also been reported that on the 27th of April, 1908, the day before the fire, Belle kept her children home from school and bought kerosene. Not only this, but she apparently also visited her lawyer to have her will written up and told anyone who would listen, she was afraid that Ray would kill her and burn her house down. Also, neighbors and locals at the time noted that the body in the fire seemed particularly small, too small to be that of Belle Gunnis, who was a tall, broad woman and weighed over 250 pounds. She was reportedly only identified on May 19th, 1908 by her dental bridges, which many have speculated she could have removed and thrown into the fire. There is little speculation about who the headless woman in the fire could be if it wasn't Belle but it has been postulated that perhaps it could have been a woman Belle had been seen with days earlier, or maybe a newly hired housekeeper. There have been many sightings over the years of Belle, although, of course, none have been verified. The most notable of these sightings is one which occurred in LA in 1931. Esther Carlson, 61, and Anna Erickson, 42, were set to be tried for the poisoning of Esther's employer, a wealthy 81-year-old man named August Lindstrom, for money that he kept in the house, which equaled about $33,735 in today's money. Esther was August's housekeeper and allegedly bore a strong resemblance to the presumed dead Belle Gunners. Due to their likeness and Esther's poisoning technique, many thought that this was THE Belle Gunness, who'd faked her own death in 1908. Esther denied these accusations, citing her work record between 1890 and 1908 as proof. She passed away before the trial. After Esther's death, authorities arranged for some Indiana residents who knew Belle to visit the body. They believed it was her. Another resident identified the three children in a photo found in Esther's trunk as those who died in the fire. The only spanner in this argument is that Belle would have been in her early 70s, not her early 60s, in 1931. An Indiana lawyer who studied the case during her masters in anthropology believed Belle probably killed at least 25 people across her terrifying murderous career. Regardless of modern day theories, Belle Gunness was never conclusively tracked down, if she had truly fled in the first place. 
Ray Lamphere died a year into his prison sentencing, leaving authorities and locals with more questions than answers. Recent DNA tests have been performed on the body left in the fire, but due to the sample of Bell's DNA being too degraded as it came in the form of an envelope, the results have come back as inconclusive. And there you have the facts. Please leave a comment down below with your own theories and speculations, and remember to like this video and subscribe to support the channel. If you're still hungry for true crime content, you can check out the Cold Case Detective podcast, which is published every Monday on Spotify, iTunes, RSS feed, and Google Podcasts, and a week later here on YouTube. Thank you for watching. Stay alert, stay safe, and I'll see you next time.